Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. All right, if you would, open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is where we'll be. The book of Colossians is in the New Testament toward the end of your Bible. I'm so encouraged to see every single one of you here this morning. It's always a good thing to be in the house of God with God's people. You know, we we come to church. There's lots of reasons to come to church. You can come to church maybe to meet and to be around other Christians. That's always a good thing. You can come to church to hear a, a choir special, hear some singing, sing with God's people. That's always a wonderful thing to do. You can come to church because of perhaps, you know, they have a nice... A great children's ministry, all these things that, that we as a church try to do to minister to God's people. But the number one reason we should be coming to church is to read and study and learn more about God through his word. And so that's why we're here this morning. I trust that's why you're here. And it's always encouraging to me to see you as God's people in your place when it's time to do that, when we gather around God's word together. Pray for a pastor this morning. He will, he's in the state of North Carolina. He's been teaching at a couple's retreat this last couple days and is now in North Carolina. He'll be there this morning and tonight and be back on uh, tomorrow. He'll be with us on Wednesday night. So keep him in your prayers as he preaches and ministers there. Their service is probably over by now, but pray for him as he preaches again tonight. All right, we'll be reading in the book of Colossians. If I would have you stand with me as we read the word of God this morning. We're just going to read a couple verses and how I like to do... Uh, scripture reading is responsively. So I'll read verse, we're going to start in verse 9 and read down to verse 12. I'll read verse 9, we'll all read together verse 10, I'll read verse 11, we'll all read together verse 12, and then I, I pray that we'll be helped by this passage. Sorry, Colossians chapter 1, very good, thanks for the reminder with Gary. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 12 is where we'll be reading. This is what Paul says. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye may walk worthy, Lord, unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you this morning for uh, those of us who are here to gather around your word, those of us who may be following along on the live stream. I pray you please bless us now through your word. I pray you use your Holy Spirit to speak through me, that it would be a help to those in the room this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Whenever a pastor asked me to preach today, I, I, the first thought was, okay, pastor, is there something you want me, to, a certain passage you want me to preach on, or a study you want me to continue to me pick up in Mark? And he told me specifically, he said, no, I want you to preach on what God has laid on your heart. And that can sometimes be intimidating, to know exactly what that is. And uh, when, as I read through my, uh, my devotions, and I'm going through, currently going through the book of Colossians, this is something that really stuck out to me, and, and my favorite uh, sermons to preach are outlines that the Bible makes on its own, and I can just follow along, very simple for me. So that's what we're going to go through. This prayer that Paul prays in the first passage of Colossians, and if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you're familiar with um, you know, a lot of Bibleology, you know the name Apostle Paul. 
Paul was, he was, he wrote almost, he wrote most or much of our New Testament. And Paul, having not followed Jesus during the time he was on earth, and having not followed him until after Christ had, had, sorry, having not followed Christ until he had already ascended, you know, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the early church. And this is all just to give a little background. It'll make sense in a second. And those of you who already know this, you can think, okay, it's just a little refresher. But that's who Paul is. He was a persecutor of the early church. And you see, after Christ has ascended, Jesus' disciples who were once, if you read through the Gospels, you see they were once very timid, very afraid, kind of unsure about Christ's identity. And you see, after his resurrection and after his ascension, his disciples became extremely bold for Christ. They began doing miracles, speaking to thousands, baptizing people in Jesus' name, and almost all of them eventually died a martyr's death. Their lives were dramatically changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this, this with, with their spreading the gospel throughout the world, this Jesus movement, this brand new thing about, okay, who is this Jesus guy who resurrected from the dead? This whole thing was brand new, and it began to spread like wildfire. It had some, the early church had some serious traction, but not without problems. You see, they, they were living under, much of the known world at the time was under the Roman government. It was a very militaristic, very oppressive regime that was that was conquered most of the world by war and bloodshed and they they had you know claiming someone else Jesus as your king that was a that was a no-no for the Roman government they did not like that they, they were they wanted to put down any kind of opposition on top of that you had the the Jewish ruling class you had the people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees what Apostle Paul was before he came to Christ and they were, they were pretty nervous about this whole Jesus movement, too. You think about many of their people, these people who were previously going to the temple, spending their money on the blood sacrifices, who were before coming and observing these man-made Old Testament, many man-made laws, Old Testament laws that were there. You know, they, they, used, they now, instead of going to the temple on Saturday or the Sabbath day, they now worship a new king. They now worship a new savior on Sunday, the resurrection Sunday. They didn't like that. You had the Romans who were constantly oppressing them. You had the Jewish ruling class who was constantly oppressing them. Every side, the early church was pressured. Every side, they were persecuted. And, and you see these, these books that we have, these epistles or letters that Paul wrote to these different churches, these different churches in different cities, or the Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, all these are written to a specific church. But if you read later in Colossians, Paul says, I want you to read this to your people, and then I want you to spread it around to other churches. I want them to read it as well. And this was Paul's way of passing along the doctrine that he had learned. And uh, so he had these, that's what we're going to look at this morning. Paul's letter to the Christians, the churches in Colossae. The, the churches that were there. You think these are new churches. This is during Paul's lifetime. He was a contemporary of the disciples. This has been just a couple decades after Christ had already risen. His name was spread around the world. And now Paul's writing to encourage churches that really he'd never been to. This book, if you think about the, um, the context behind this book, Paul is writing this letter as a Roman prisoner. The Romans didn't like Paul going around preaching, stirring up trouble for them as proclaiming Jesus as the king. The Jews didn't like it, so they, they brought the Roman government into it. And you had... Paul writing this letter 
to the people of Colossae, people he had never seen, people he'd never, the church he didn't start, a church he didn't, he's never been to, but he writes this after a visit from a man named Epaphras. So you can see it in verse 7 of Colossians chapter 1, the Bible says, as he, learned all, as he also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Epaphras was probably one of the founding members of this church. Maybe he was the pastor. He was definitely one of the early Christians in that city. And what he had done is he had come to Paul all the way to Rome to pass along a message, to have a conversation. And whenever you look at the book of Colossians, it's easy to see what exactly their conversation was. Almost like looking through a reflection. You see, you, it's almost like hearing one side of a telephone conversation. Oftentimes you can pick up what the other person's saying. Paul is telling the Colossians. He sends this letter back with Epaphras. He says, this is what you as a new church should do. These are some things you should work on. These are some things to be reminded by. And you could tell that these Epaphras went to him for advice on a lot of different pressures the church was facing. Not only persecution, but pressures, worldly pressures from, from the Judaistic traditions, from probably pagan religions that these followers of Jesus had left. And now they're feeling pressure to return to, tempting to go back to with all the pressure they have, losing jobs, losing family members, being disowned, some of them killed, some of them imprisoned, beaten. These are all things that Paul is writing to a church like this to encourage them. And he writes this, writes a letter, sends it back to Epaphras. And he asks for this letter to be, again, to be read aloud in the church and then also passed along to other churches in the area. There's a couple other churches that were nearby, like Laodicea. And, um, and he said, you know, I want you to go spread this around because this isn't just for you. It's for everybody. It's for all the churches. Which is a reminder, this is for us today. We still, we, we're still a church and we still are in need of these reminders. So how the book of Colossians begins, begins with Paul introducing himself and saying how grateful he is from, from his visit, for having the visit with Epaphras. He says, I heard about how your love is growing, how your faith is growing, how you took hold of the gospel so quickly and it's bearing fruit in your lives. These are, these are the first things that Epaphras probably told him. And Paul says, I'm so excited to hear this. And over the next couple verses in chapter 1, Paul does two things. First, he records a prayer that he has. A prayer that he has for these specific people. A prayer that he said, this is, whenever, whenever my name Whenever your name runs across my prayer list, this is how I pray for you. And it's followed by a short poem that, he, that, that is about Jesus Christ in the next following verses. But what I want to look at first is this prayer. I want to focus on the prayer that Paul prays for these people. And, you know, this is, this is something that Paul does often in his epistles. He says, this is how I pray. This is the things I pray for. This is the kind of thing I think God will give you or God will help you if you turn to him. And that's what we're going to look at. I, uh, I'm not like Pastor I don't have uh, those clear, alliterated outlines, so bear with me. This might be a little clunky, but one day, one day I'll be at that level, be that creative. But we're going to look at five ways that the Apostle Paul prays for the Colossians. And with each of these, each of these ways that we see Paul prays, I want you to think in your own mind. Whenever, whenever I do teen church, I oftentimes want to end with a question that, to really ask yourself. And each of these points, I want to think, number one, is this my prayer for myself? And number two, are these the kind of ways that I pray for others? Is this the kind of prayer that I have in my life? Is this really my heart's desire for myself? And number two, is this the kind of thing I pray for 
for others. So first, let's look at in verse 9 is where we'll start. Verse 9 says this, For this cause, saying, after hearing all about the great things that you've done, and after Epaphras telling me all these great ways that you're growing, he said, For this cause, also since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. He said, I don't just pray for people who are in hard times. I pray for you, and I haven't stopped praying for you because you're doing so well. He says, we, uh, Do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that first that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. What exactly that means? What, what exactly does that mean? That means that Paul says he prays for them, first of all, to understand God's will for their lives. And you may say in your own heart, oh, that's awesome. I wish I knew God's will for my life. I wish he would tell me exactly what to do. I wish he would tell me who to marry, what job to work, how many kids to have, where to live, and I could just leave the rest up to him, and I could just be an autopilot. That would be awesome. That's not the kind of will that, God, that Paul is referring to here. He's, he's saying that he wants the church at Colossae to understand God's will for them as a church, for them as a, as a Christian, and for us as followers of Jesus. He's saying God has a desire for you, individually, yes, but as a church, as a people, as a city. He has a desire for you as a Christian. And he says, first, I want you to know what that, that desire is. I want you to know what it means to follow Christ. He basically says here, God, let them know your mind. Let them know how you think. Let them know who you are. Let them know how to live. You see, God doesn't want to be some kind of puppeteer for you. He doesn't want to tell you exactly what to do. He wants to live in a relationship with you. And he wants you to do things that please him because it's his desire and because it's your desire. God's not going to force you to do anything. And he says here, he, Paul says, he says, I, I want them to be filled with the knowledge of your will, God. These are the things I pray for. I pray that you know what you're supposed to do. I pray you know what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Christ. These are the things that he prays for. You, you think many of these people, they came from, from maybe humanistic uh, philosophies or pagan traditions or Judaistic traditions, and many of those things are, okay, on Saturday we do this. Every Tuesday of the month we take blood sac sacrifice. We go worship this God at this temple and this God at that temple. And they had a very strict set of rules for many of these different ideologies. And now these people who were leaving those things, coming to Christ, they're in this city with other new believers, and they're saying, what next? What does it mean to actually follow Christ? And as Paul's saying, this is what I want you to know. I want you to know what that means. I want you to have the knowledge, the knowledge of what it means to follow Christ. You know, you see... Um, they basically said, okay, so we know, we know what we used to do to please our other gods or to try to be at peace with our God. But what, is, what does Jesus expect from us? And Paul is praying that they would know that, that they would know how to speak, how to behave, how to think like Christ wants them to behave, wants them to speak, wants them to think. And, you know, so let's ask ourselves, do we ourselves even know what it means to be a follower of Christ? You know, because if you say, no, I don't know, I've got great news for you. It's all right here. You can know exactly what that means. You can know the mind of God by reading his word. It's one of my favorite things about 
having the four Gospels is we can read about Jesus Christ, who was God, who had the mind of God, who said the things that God would have said. He did the things that God would have done. He was God. So we can know exactly how we can behave as a human because we had a God that became human. And we know exactly what to do next. We can know what his will for our lives is when we follow along. We, we, we actually study. We seek to know what would Jesus do? What did Jesus do here? How can I know more about the mind of God? And we have, we have much more than the Colossians did at that time. We have, we have several more epistles here in the back. We have many more books than they had at the time. And those are more ways that we have to know. We can know the will of God. We can know the will of God. That term will is God's desire for us. This is his best offer to us. And Paul's praying these people, they would really know that. They would understand. What does God think about what I do? How does, you know, you can, you can uh, go about this, this whole week thinking, you know, am I doing right now what I want to do? Or am I doing right now the will of God? Is the way I behave, is it my will or is it the will of God? And many of those times, those questions can come through our minds, but the answer is right here. The answer is right here. If you really want to know, we can know. And Paul's praying that the church of Colossae, they would seek it out, that they would know, that they would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. They would know what it means to follow God. That's the first thing that Paul prays for. But uh, one thing, I, so let's, let's think to ourselves. Is this something that we want of ourselves? Do we actually want to know the will of God for our lives, or do we want God to be okay with our will for our life? There's a, there's a huge difference there. Who's, who are we seeking to please? Whose desire is more important? Our desire for our own lives or God's desire for our own lives? Think about, think about do we pray for that for ourselves? And then number two, do we pray for others that way? Do we pray that others would, would come to that realization that their lives are not their own, that now as a follower of Christ, they are dead to sin and live to Christ. Those are the things that we should be as Christians praying for each other, just like Paul prays here for the church of Colossae. So first we see that he prays for them to know the will of God. Know what it is. Know what to do. But let's look at number two in verse 10. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. He says, he says why do I pray that they know the will of God? Number 10, that ye may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. That you may walk worthy. Something that's interesting is that first is be filled is a passive verb, but that you may walk worthy is an active verb. He says, number, number one, I want you to know the will of God, but that doesn't mean anything. I want you to do the will of God. I want you not just to know, I want you to do. Paul understands human nature because Every single one of us knows we could be better at something. We, knows we, we know we could be kinder. We could be healthier. We could be, you know, neater. We could be more studious. But knowing that you need to do something doesn't make it happen. He says just because you might know the will of God for your life, just because you might know what it means to be a follower of Jesus, just because you might know what you should do, it's not enough. He's saying, Church of Colossae, don't stop there. Put action to your thoughts. Put action to your knowledge and apply that. So for, second, we see that Paul prays that knowing God's will for them would lead them to action. Lead them to walk worthy is the term he used. Walk worthy 
of the Lord unto all pleasing. You know, you can, you can see uh, many, many times I'm, I'm driving down the highway and I'll have maybe my Waze app open or my, uh, my maps and it'll say hazard in the road ahead. You know, just knowing that there's a hazard in the road ahead is not going to keep me safe. It's the adjusting of the steering. It's the applying of the brake pedal. Those are the, the actions that happen because of what I know that affect what I do. He says, I want you to be filled with knowledge. And he says, then I want you to act on it. So think to yourself, is that, number one, that first point, is it your desire to know the will of God? You may say, yeah, oh, I would love to know. It would be awesome to know what it would be like to be a Christian. It would be awesome to know what it means to be a follower of Christ. But think secondly, this is, this is where it gets difficult. Is this your desire to walk worthy? Is it your desire to actually take that step, to take the action to fulfill the desire, to fulfill what you know in your mind to do? Can you actually take that step to make the decision to walk worthy? These are the, these are the real difficult things that we do, that we have to do. You know, this is, this is the uh, putting action to this, to this passive verb would be, okay, I should probably keep my mouth shut when I have that, that, that bad comment to say. I should probably bring my mind to subjection whenever that, that lustful or that hateful thought comes into my mind. When we say, you know, I should probably stand up and be bold and do what's right, even though it's not popular. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it becomes difficult. When we can know what to do, but we don't decide to do it, then we're telling ourselves, yes, I want to know your will, God, but I'm not sure if I want to actually do it. So I want to ask ourselves this morning is, number one, do we want to know the will of God? And if yes, it just makes perfect sense. Number two, we have to do the will of God. We have to act in that way. Is that our heart's desire? Is that something we pray for ourselves? God, let me do your will today. Let me, let me live as you lived on earth. God, Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to, to work in a workplace, to have unsafe family members. He knows what it's like to be, to be persecuted, all these things. And somehow, somehow we think, oh, that's too hard for me. I'm not going to do that. I want to know what God wants for me, but I want to I have, have the option to take and, and leave what I want. So it, it doesn't make sense. If we are going to want to know the will of God, we have to want to do the will of God. And again, that's, that's the difficult part. But that's why Paul prays for them, because he knows that's the difficult part. He knows that's where, that's where Satan puts a stop to it. That's where many times most Christians stop. They stop at knowing the will of God. They stop when they, when they know what they should do, but they consciously make decisions, either number one, to, to not do the right thing, not do the will of God, or they choose to be ignorant of the will of God. So think to yourself, number one, am I, do I really want to know the will of God? And number two, if I do know the will of God, am I willing to put action to it? Am I willing to walk worthy is what Paul says. So think to yourself, are those, are those the things that we're doing in our lives in a day-to-day basis, week to week, hour to hour, minute by minute? What, what's going through our mind? Is it what I want to do or is it what Christ want, would have done? Is it what God wants me as a Christian to do? Not necessarily wants me as Derek Wilkerson to do or you as yourself to do, but what does a Christian do in this situation? How would Jesus have reacted? How would Jesus have acted? So first we see that Paul prays that they know the will of God for their lives. They know what it means to be a Christian. They know what it means to follow Christ. And second, he prays that they take that action to be a follower of Christ, to walk worthy 
of their Savior. And third, let's look at this. Third is that he prays for their personal relationship with God to grow. That's the end of verse 10. He says, increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's, let's stop and consider the difference between point one and point three. Point one, he says, I want you to know the will of God. I want you to know what God desires for Christians to do. He said, but, number, but this, this verse here, he says, that you be increasing in the knowledge of God. Not just of his will, but of his person. To know God. Isn't it amazing that we have such an, a powerful, omnipotent, eternal God, but he still has a desire to know us and to be known by us? He wants a relationship with us? That, that's mind-blowing. If you were to stop and consider the billions of people who've existed throughout history, you think about how small and puny our little lives are and how amazing God is and that he still wants a relationship with you as an individual. He still wants to have that communion with you. He wants to fulfill the whole reason why you were created and the whole reason why you exist, which is to glorify him and to have a relationship with him. This is the essence of the Christian life. If you do not have a relationship with Christ, if all you have is a knowledge of his will, and all you do is walk through the motions of, oh, I can't do that because that's not what a Christian would do. I can't do that because that's not what a Christian would do. I'll do this because that's what a Christian would do. You can go that far and you, you, know, you can look really nice and pretty on the outside. But without this relationship with God, it's, it's empty. And, Christ, and Paul is praying that the church of Colossae, they understand these logical steps. Know the will of God. Do the will of God because you know the will of because you know God. That word knowledge there in Greek, it implies more of a firsthand experiential knowledge. To know him by by actually being there. It's the difference between hearing from a friend that the Rams won the Super Bowl and playing in confetti in the field. It's actually being there, actually knowing what it's like. You, you, you all know what it's like to be, to have a relationship with, with somebody. And you can kind of think back on, oh, I remember when I knew them as an acquaintance and how different I know them now. In that same way, we can know God and God wants us to be known by him. And it's interesting, he says increasing, increasing. You know, these, these Christians, they had, already, they had already come to follow Christ. They had already begun their relationship with him. But he challenges them to continue to increase their knowledge of him, continue to search him, continue to seek for him, and to, to grow closer to him. All to have that experience, to have that relationship with God that we, for which we were created for, our whole purpose is to have a relationship with with him and we've we've messed that up as a human race we've sinned we've turned our back on him he still redeemed us he still wanted a relationship with us and still sometimes we neglect him why do we do that why do we neglect him even though he's done so much for us even though him as an almighty god sometimes we think in our own minds like i'll get to this in a second but we 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 take for granted all that he's done for us why do we do that? It's because we're not increasing in the knowledge of God. We're not continuing to grow in our relationship with him. So is that our, is that our prayer for ourselves? Do we say, God, let me know you. God, let me know more about you. God, let my children know more about you. God, let my spouse, let my family, let them, let my coworkers get to know you. That should be our prayer for each other. And it should be our prayer for ourselves. Let's look at verse 11. 
Let's all read the first, uh, let's read verse 11 together. Ready? Begin. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering and joyfulness. The, for, the fourth thing that Paul prays for them in this order is he prays for them to have an extra measure of strength, patience, long-suffering, and joy. He said, God, I pray that you would strengthen these people. He knows, he knows how, how being a new Christian felt like. He knows because he persecuted so many new Christians. He knew that this young church needed an extra dose of strength. He, needed, he, know they needed, he knew they needed, they needed more patience, long-suffering, and that through all this, they would have joy. You know, you, you need, if you read the four prayer requests, you see that this is kind of a prerequisite. Those prayer requests were a prerequisite for this joy, for this strength. He said, let them know you, let them do your, or let them know your will, let them do your will because they know you and give them the strength, the patience, the long-suffering, and the joy that comes with knowing you, that comes with doing your will. He knew the kind of suffering that they were, going to, they were going to have to withstand. He knew the social pressures that they would stand. If Paphras came back and told him, he said, these are our problems. This is what's going on. People are being led astray from, with false doctrines. And Paul is saying, I'm, every time I pray for you, I pray that you be strengthened. I pray that you have patience. You know, patience with who? Probably with their persecutors. Probably with family members who had not yet come to Christ. Long-suffering for the people who were harming them or hurting them or wished ill to them. How, how are they supposed to have patience with them? I'm, I'm sure Paul in his own mind thought, I was once one of those people. And if someone, if, you know, if, he said, if God didn't have patience with me, where would I be? And he encourages these Christians to have patience, probably one toward another, but also toward their persecutors, toward the world. And he knows that having those things, having, having done the will of God and having known God, you have access to that strength, to that joy, to that patience and long-suffering that he provides for us. You know, you say, well, how is Paul writing this? You know, he's writing all this from prison. He's praying for other people to be strong as he himself is being persecuted. He's praying for other people to have joy and long-suffering and patience while he, you know, he isn't, isn't being exactly shown that. That, that shows the, the strength that Paul had and how there's no excuse for us not to also pray the same thing for ourselves and for each other. One thing I do notice, too, about Paul's prayers is he rarely ever prays for people's circumstances to change. I don't know if he ever does. If he ever says, God, please let Nero drop dead so he'll stop persecuting us. He never says that. He never says, God, please help all those Christians that got fired to get their old jobs back. He never said that. You know, but what he did say, he says, give them strength. Bring them through these trials. One thing I know is because when we suffer for Christ, there's a joy and there's a patience, there's a long suffering that's compounded on the other side of that. You look at the book of James and how it begins is, uh, he says, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. He said, you can be happy when you're being tempted. You can be happy whenever you're being tried. He said, because on the other side of that is a faith that is stronger, a faith that is, that is larger and growing. And we can be thankful for that, and we can pray for others to give them the strength to get through trials, to give them the, the strength and the, the, the ability to realize 
It's not of themselves to look up and let God carry them through the trials they're going through, the persecutions they're having, the problems that are, they're, they're going through in their lives. So you think about Jesus in his own life. You know, he didn't really treat God like a genie. He wasn't, he wasn't like you and me, uh, God, please uh, help me to, you know, get this much of my tax refund. God, please help me to get this job. God, please make this happen for me. Help me not to be late for work today. Those are the kind of things that we pray for in the middle of our prayers. But what was Jesus, what did Jesus tell the disciples to pray? He said, pray that God's will is done on earth. He says, God, I pray that you would have your will done on earth and use me to make that happen. God, I, use, I pray that you would please strengthen these people to help them do your will on earth. We already know his will. His will is, we know his will through his word. But he's praying that God strengthens people to make that happen. He's not merely a, a quick fix of, God, take me out of this trial. But he says, God, take them through this trial. Take them through this season. So then, number four, we see that God prays that they have an extra measure of strength, patience, long-suffering, and joy. And lastly, number five is, let's read verse 12 one more time together. Ready? Begin. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of his saints in life. Lastly, he says he prays for them not to get over salvation. He says, continue to thank the Father for giving us his Son, for sending Christ to be our salvation, to be our Redeemer. And in these next couple of verses, he gets into his, his poem, his two stanzas, talking about Jesus Christ as our Redeemer and all that he is. He says, in the end of his prayer, he says, don't forget to give thanks. In this book of Colossians, it is full of Paul reminding the people to give thanks. If you look at chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God. He's giving them an example. In verse 12, he says, giving thanks unto the Father. In chapter 2, in verse 7, he says, abounding therein with thanksgiving. In chapter 3, in verse 15, he says, and be ye thankful. In verse 17, he says, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. In chapter 4, he says, continue in prayer, watching the same with thanksgiving. Every single chapter in this book, every couple sentences, Paul's reminding them, stay thankful. You know, you'll never see a grumpy, thankful person. They're, thankful Christians are happy Christians. And Paul knew this, and he encouraged them, hey, don't, don't, sit, on your, don't sit on your bottom and just think of all the things that you wish you could have, or the, all the troubles that are troubling you. Instead, be thankful for all that you have. All that you have. He says, and if you can't be thankful for maybe material possessions, if you can't be thankful for maybe pleasant circumstances, he said, I know one thing that every Christian can be thankful for. And that's right there. He said, but you can be thankful for your salvation. You can be thankful that God sent his son for you. And you know, salvation by grace through faith. God knew that uh, we, could do, we could do nothing of ourselves. We are completely helpless. And he sent his son anyway to redeem us. And Paul says, this is what I pray for. I pray that you don't get over what it means to be a Christian, what it means to know that your sins are forgiven, what it means that you have a home in heaven. That will change your life if you completely understand what that means. That will change your, your day. That will change the hour. That will change your, your every single moment of your life if you never get over salvation. It's so easy to think about getting saved and being saved and being a Christian and think of those terms as, as just commonplace and just, you know, they go in one ear, out the other. But when we think about what that actually means, it'll change our life. If we understood the weight of salvation, 
that first point, wanting to know the will of God, that's a no-brainer. He saved me. All right, what do you want me to do next? And if we understand what Jesus went through on the cross for us, we understood the pain that he suffered, the separation from God that he endured in our place, doing his will, doing what he wants us to do, show me how to do it and I'll do it. That would be our attitude if we actually understood all that he, does, he did for us. You know, if we actually understood how undeserving we are of a second chance at a, of a, on a, to a relationship with Christ, a relationship with a God who created us, a God that, that gave us a purpose in this world, if we actually understood all that he had done for us as undeserving, sinful humans, you know, then, then asking him and thanking him for all he's done, asking him to give us that strength, asking him to help us through trials, that's, that's the easiest thing in the world. These are all things that happen when we are thankful to the Father, is what he says. And if you've never had that experience, if, you've, if you're, you're here this morning, you've never had a time and a place that you have known what God's will for your life as a person is to know him and to come to him through Jesus Christ as your Savior and to say, I am completely undeserving. I cannot get to heaven on my own. I deserve to be sent straight to hell with how unholy my life is in the presence of a holy God. If you've not come to that point and accepted Christ as your Savior, I encourage you to do that today. Do that this morning. So before we go, those, those questions, let's think about those questions. Number one, are we, do we know the will of God? Do we know what we should do? If we don't, then we should study. If we do, if yes, move on to point two. What is that? It's, is knowing the will of God leading us to action? Are we doing the will of God? Number three, is our per personal relationship with God growing? Were we, were we really excited about reading our Bible in, back in the first week of January and it kind of faded off? Were we really excited about being faithful to the church, being faithful to be at every church service and be, being faithful in our tithes and offerings and being faithful in our devotions when we first got saved? And since then, you know, we've kind of been, we've kind of let it slack a little bit. And number four, do we, do we go to God for our strength? Do we go to God for joy? Do we go to God to ask him for patience? And number five, have we taken salvation for granted? Do we, do, we, do we ever take time to, instead of saying, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me, and then can you help me, whatever else that we have, can you help grandma, she's sick, we continue going our prayer without ever comprehending what it means to be saved? Have we taken that for granted? These are all th questions we can ask ourselves, and these were all things that Paul knew would be a problem in the early church. And he says, this is how I pray for you. This is what God wants for you. This is what I want for you. And I'm praying this is what you want for yourself. And I'm praying that this is what we as a church family want for ourselves. That we want to know the will of God. We want to do the will of God. That we want his strength, patience, joy, and that we will never get over the blessing and the, the uh, incredible miracle of salvation.